0: Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee.
1: Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee? Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee.
0: Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry.
1: Welcome to Episode 8 of Unknown Orbits, Venus Equilateral by George O. Smith. I'm Patrick Baird.
0: And I'm Steve Reitze.
1: Tonight, we're going to take a trip back to the 1940s and take a look at a old-fashioned kind of a story, not 1930s old-fashioned, but very much John W. Campbell old-fashioned sort of story. It's a series of stories written between... 1942 and 1945, published in Astounding Magazine. The first story, QRM Interplanetary, was published in October 1942. The last was published in the November 1945 issue. So it was almost perfectly bracketing World War II. Not that there's a direct connection there, but it's interesting to know that that was the time period when these stories were being written and published. They were later collected together in book form starting in 1947 with additional stories being added to the collections. So basically, the Venus Equilateral Series is about a huge space station located between the orbits of Earth and Venus. It's built on a nickel-iron asteroid and is operated not by the government, but by a private company. Its job is to serve as a communications relay between all the different points of the solar system. By contract, the station is required to relay at least one message every 24 hours.
0: Which is a nice source of tension for a story if the transmission breaks down.
1: Oh, yes. And it actually does in the very first story, QMR Interplanetary. Q-R-M, interplanetary. I wouldn't necessarily classify these stories as spine-tingling suspense. The basic thrust of all of these stories is you have a bunch of really smart engineers and technicians on this space station, and they face various technical problems that they have to solve. And these are very much the classic men-fixing-stuff kind of stories. And the author, I should give a little background on on Smith, he was an electronics engineer. According to Frederick Pohl, he based his set of characters, the returning set of characters that were in every story, on his buddies that worked with him in a laboratory. So he was very much like a lot of these guys coming out of the 1930s into the 1940s, that wrote science fiction, especially for John W. Campbell. They were technically oriented people. They were engineers, they might have been scientists, they might have been academics, but Smith was an engineer and it really shows in these stories. The one criticism that I have of the stories is that there is a whole lot of explaining in these stories where various characters go on for paragraph after paragraph after paragraph, explaining exactly how they're going to get the beam to shoot out into space and contact that lost spaceship that nobody else can find. And it's technically dense material. And I'm pretty sure at least some of it is no longer even close to being scientifically accurate. Some of it might have been just made up. Uh, but it is very technically dense stuff.
0: what did stand out to me was the early description of what a message goes through to be transmitted all the way down into the detail writing, oh, which yeah. I like and I have done myself. But it did occur to me at the time that that also would have appealed to John W. Campbell.
1: Yes, one of the things that we're going to discover and learn about and bring to our our listeners in this show is getting to understand what John W. Campbell wanted from his writers, what he pushed his writers to produce. A lot of the stories that appeared in Astounding Magazines originated as ideas from John W. Campbell. I don't think any of these did, but he may have suggested an idea or two. But this is definitely one of the key types of stories that John W. Campbell loved, which is the very technical, very hard science fiction men fixing shit sort of a story. So this fits right in. And interestingly, this may have some bearing on it. He was friends with George O. Smith to such a point that his first wife, Donya, wound up leaving him for Smith. Really? Yeah. The marriage was not a happy marriage for a long time, because I'm kind of guessing it was not easy being married to John W. Campbell. But interestingly, what drove the marriage to fall apart mainly, and she ran off, literally ran off with George O. Smith. He was heavily into L. Ron Hubbard's burgeoning dianetics ah. at the time. I mean, he was doing, what do they call it? Were they trying to recover lost memories of trauma?
0: You know, I forget the name. It's called The Process, something like that. You're tracking down engrams, which is their yeah. term for traumas.
1: Right. So these were very intense sessions where people would spend hours doing this. It was painful and intense and draining. And he kept trying to convince his wife to do it. And she's like, no, I want nothing to do with this. This is crazy. And allegedly, at one point, he talked about kidnapping her and taking her to Hubbard's mansion and forcing her to do one of these uh, cleansing sessions or these process sessions, whatever they may be. That's how way over his head he was with this at that point in his life.
0: Can I make a minor observation? Is that a lot of those early science fiction people had this kind of conceit that the clever and conveniently science fiction-oriented person would be able to solve all the problems of the world?
1: Yeah, We'll revisit L. Ron Hubbard for sure at some point in the future and get more into to this aspect but yes, you're you're right. This was, there was a lot of science fiction writers. Uh, the one that sticks out to me is A.E. Van Vogt was definitely very heavily involved in this as well. And that's exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to create a better man, a better human being by doing this. But, you know, he was a friend of John W. Campbell. And I think even when the, when he ran off with his wife, I think John was like, yeah, whatever. She's yours. I'm done with her. Good luck. I don't know whether or not that affected the relationship going forward but I don't think he wrote a lot of science fiction after that anyway, or not not that much. But at any rate, getting back to the Venus Equilateral series, in spite of the heavy, hard science fiction here, the pages and pages of explanation of technology, I did find a certain amount of charm in it. I kind of thought of it almost like a madman in space. Not that it was anywhere near as good as mad men but the whole milieu where you know men smoke and drank and women were only sec- literally in this any series of stories women the only women in the stories they're all secretaries and they're all trying to to find a husband i mean that's literally their only role and and there's all kinds of uh wise cracking repartee between the women and various men That's basically would definitely be considered sexual harassment nowadays. But the women are welcoming this banter because, as I said, they're all trying to find a husband. So they're willing to flatter whoever they think is a good candidate. The women are, are trying to land the men just as much as the men are trying to whatever with
0: the women. It did give me kind of the sense of someone in their early 20s who maybe didn't have a lot of experience with the opposite sex trying to write what they thought would be really cool sounding.
1: Well, you know, it's not like this, this wasn't pretty common in the era. It's, it's not like this was any kind of an outlier. This very much reminds me of the dialogue that you get 10 years later in 1950s science fiction movies, you know, where you've got the captain, the leader, the, the strong guy, and, you know, you've got the wisecracking sergeant from uh, Brooklyn, and then there's always the in, super intelligent scientist woman who is, still has to make coffee for all the men and has to endure, in some cases, really appalling sexual harassment. Um, my favorite is Red Planet Mars. The dialogue in that movie is painful. It's brutally brutal sexual harassment, but that's what this story has. It has that interplay between the sexes that's very much of its time, and then the wisecracking between the the men that's not terribly funny in general. And of course, the setting of it is they have all of their meetings at the only bar on the station, so they're sitting around drinking beer, drinking cocktails, smoking cigarettes, while they're writing on tablecloths these elaborate formulas that they're going to need to be able to shoot a beam out into space. By the way, that's almost every one of these stories is obsessed with shooting beams of radio waves or radar or whatever out into space. Just I'm guessing that's what George O. Smith did for a living, was something to do with shooting beams
0: somewhere. I did do a little bit of reading up on the sort of things that George Smith was talking about. And as far as I could tell, these are real things. I'm not sure if there are things that are really relevant today, but the whole idea of having a circularly polarized radio beam, that's a real thing. But it's a level of detail that I don't think really anyone yeah. would care about yeah. now.
1: It literally goes on for pages. Now, I hope we haven't put people off too much on this, but if anybody's going to read any of these stories, the one that I would recommend is the most accessible one, which is the first one, QRM Interplanetary. It's kind of a funny story where the gang's there at the station and they're doing their thing and everything's running great. And corporate sends a troubleshooter, a efficiency expert to come and clean up the station and find ways to wring to a penny or two out of the costs and make things run more efficiently. And of course, he's a complete idiot. And he almost winds up killing everybody on the station that one's a lot more fun than the rest of them for the most part and it doesn't have quite as much dense explaining as the other ones do My guess is that this was his idea that he pitched to John W Campbell and then once this one was printed John W. Campbell turned to him and said, "Well that was great, but can you put a, a lot more explanation about beams in in the rest of your stories and that's the direction it went from there
0: thanks to Campbell and at two cents of word who are you to say no
1: i'm guessing it's a it's a combination of filling his words count to get more cash out of the story but also getting off his chest everything that he's obsessed with at work all day long you know it's like boy i bet people would really be fascinated to learn about uh interlocular Circular radiological uh, beam uh, technology. I, I I think I'll go. On, I'll put that in the next story. It'll be fascinating.
0: You know, I explained the whole thing to the last woman I was on a date with, and I couldn't <laughs> believe it. She was not interested. <laughs> yeah, he strikes me as that kind of
1: a guy. But QRM interplanetary. That's the one to read. The rest of them, if you if you really love hard science fiction, yeah, you know, it might be right up your alley.
0: May I tell a bit of trivia about the title? Yes, please do. QRM is a code. In early Morse code, they developed some casual codes among operators, and they became codified later on. QRM is between telegraph operators, where one is asking the other, are you getting interference? So you can see how it fits the plot.
1: Yes, yeah, interference. That's exactly what this story is all about. So what does QRM stand for then? Do you have any idea?
0: No idea. Some of the early telegraph shortcuts were not based on the literal letter, but more on what the Morse code for the letter was. In other words, they're not literally looking to use the word S. They're instead using dot, 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 which is S, if, if you see mm-hmm. what I mean. Yeah. So I think Q must have been picked for that reason, that it was somewhat unique. And there's about 10 or so Q codes. And I think there were C codes at one point, because I remember another science fiction story, which I swear was called Come Quick Danger. And it was like CQD or something. I couldn't find that in time for this show.
1: Well, that's fascinating. That's exactly the sort of detail that George O. Smith would have been really impressed by, I'm sure. So in my doing research for this show, I kept running against this sentiment from writers and editors uh, who talked about this series. And it was the same sentiment over and over again, that the Venus Equilateral was an example of a type of science fiction that had poorly aged or was out of date or just didn't hold up anymore. And that kind of ticked me off a little bit.
0: I, I would disagree with that. I think it aged all right. I think it's a good story today.
1: Yeah, and like I said, QRM Interplanetary is still pretty fun and readable, I think. But what I think they're talking about when they talk about how it's it doesn't hold up anymore. Of course there's that sort of sexist, out of date banter between men and women. The fact every woman in the in this story was a secretary. You know, the the sort of cliched Hollywood banter that they engage in with lots of wisecracks. Yeah, of course, stylistically, that definitely is something that, you know, went away, I think, gradually in the 1950s. But that doesn't diminish the fact that for a lot of people, even today, these would be highly enjoyable stories. If you can read these stories in context, if you understand that this was not being written as high literature, this was being written in the early days of science fiction when ideas were more important than character or plot or the quality of your writing. So it was of its era very much. It symbolizes, I think, in, in the case of John W. Campbell, something that he did that he wanted to see in his magazine a lot, and let's face it, that's kind of the way society was in the nineteen forties. You know, you you didn't have a lot of emancipated women at that time, especially during World War Two. I mean, yes, World War II was when when women got out of the home and were able to go work in factories and things like that for the first time. So that started the started the process of women becoming emancipated. But you know, when you're talking about nineteen forty two and nineteen forty three. This is very much of its era. And I think if you're not able to put it in context and understand that and read it for what it is, you know, enjoyable, hard science fiction, it's like a puzzle story. So, it's, it, you know, the enjoyment comes in trying to understand the technology and seeing how they come up with a solution to the problem. That's it. You know, that, that does bother me a little bit when when people just put it down completely saying it doesn't hold up. When I see this sort, and I've seen this sort of thing applied against other writers and other types of science fiction. And I I think a lot of times it's one of several things. Number one, I think in some cases it's self-serving for the writers who are denigrating older science fiction. They're trying to brand themselves as the new thing, as the latest trend in, in, in science fiction. And I think this was very much true starting in the 1960s and definitely in the 1970s when there was a movement to push science fiction upwards in the literary ladder to where it would be considered quality literature alongside of any other contemporary uh, fiction. So there was a lot of effort being made to clean up science fiction and, and make it respectable. And a lot of these writers that were doing that were engaged in something of a crusade. So I think it was kind of self-serving to denigrate stuff like this, which is, let's let's be clear, Venus Equilateral is, is a pretty ripe target for somebody who wanted to say, well, this is old fossilized science fiction. That's not relevant anymore. So I think there's a lot of that behind it. But I think It always bothers me when people just lack historical perspective to understand a piece of fiction or a movie uh, or a TV show without understanding the the culture that it was spawned in and what things were like at the time. That ticked me off a little bit. I just wondered what what you thought about, about that sort
0: of thing. What you bring up reminds me of... One of the things I enjoy about these older stories is you get kind of a, a shadow impression of what life was like at the time.
1: Yeah, I think that's valuable.
0: He made the new boss into kind of a moral crusader, which the 1930s was filled with. We have Billy Sunday, Amy Temple McPherson, you got the Haze Board, you have Elliot Ness. And this guy fits that mold where he doesn't touch a job. He doesn't drink at all. He thinks drinking is terrible and evil. Oh, yeah. He closes dude. the
1: bar at one point, which yeah. was a tragic part of the story
0: there when he, he closes down the bar. He is a character that comes from the 1930s. He shares characteristics with the CEO that has no domain knowledge of the business coming in, trying to make changes.
1: You know, I think that it also mirrors something that's important to understand to put into context. I guarantee you, this character was probably based on a real person that Smith dealt with in, as his job as an engineer. That the, he probably went through some similar experience, where some efficiency f- expert was brought in to try to, you know, get these eggheads in line, you know, and and get him get him to be more efficient. You know, and that was probably a very common experience for anybody working in the corporate world in 1930s and 1940s. You know, if you were a technical expert, like, let's say, an engineer or a laboratory technician, you know how to do your job. You know what needed to be done to to get things done. And you were constantly having people from management coming in and, and in interfering with what you're trying to do. So there's, I think there's a lot of that there. I think it was even more. I mean, it happens today, sure. But I think back in those days, it was probably even more oppressive than than it is now. I guarantee you that that's part of what went into the story. And again, I think that's historical context that helps you to appreciate the story.
0: One of the ways I looked at the story was as a writer, I admired the situation that George O. Smith created with this story. I would guess that he took what was a fairly ordinary type of office drama and he placed it in space he he gave it space type of problems to occur and to overcome and in doing so he created an environment that was rich with story possibilities he's got a space station the size of a city so you have that right there it is in the middle of everything it is a very important thing so you have Deadlines and and tension automatically, but it's a beautiful setup for a series of stories.
1: And clearly, that worked because he was able to continue writing for several more years, publishing a couple every year. Um, I'm sure that they were probably pretty popular among the readers of Astounding Magazine. And you know that's that's nice as a writer when you can create a premise that allows you to repeat yourself and continue to tell stories through that the template of that premise that makes it easier to focus your storytelling when you're following an existing structure. I have a project down the road that I'm going to be doing that's going to be similar to that, that has a basic premise that repeats itself each time the story is told with different characters. So I like that as a writer. I like being handcuffed a little bit by a familiar structure. So for me that's ideal. And this is a pretty rigid structure. I didn't read all of the stories, I'll be honest with you. I, I think it would have taken me six months to, to work up the energy to actually read all of them because there were a few that I, I started reading and I fell asleep. <laughs> which is not exactly a recommendation. But they they followed a, a very readable format where they introduced the problem, they discussed why it's a problem in detail. Then they start throwing out ideas and dismissing solutions. Before they get to the actual solution, they have to eliminate several different possibilities. Each one of those points describing the problem, discarding the alternatives, all of those go into deep detail of the technical background on all of those different aspects. So that's where those massive blocks of text come in is is all of that. And then they finally get around to the one idea that they think it's going to work. And then they have to go down to the machine shop and have the machinist make the piece of equipment that they're going to use. And And um, they're not sure if it's going to work, or maybe they have a problem in the middle of the production process that makes a complication. And then finally, at the very last minute with the ticking clock, they launch their solution and what do you know, it works. And everybody goes down to the bar and has a drink and lives happily ever after. That's a very neat structure that spawned like up to 12 stories, I believe.
0: Well, when you have an exciting situation that you can take advantage of, that's what you do. Like Asimov and The Three Laws, picking apart The Three Laws and writing new stories that did different things with them.
1: Yeah, well, as a writer, that's what you want to do. You want to create ideas that are not immutable. To me, when you come up with an idea, ideally, you should immediately come up with a counterpoint to it. And that's why you have a fictional technique, which I'm using in my current project right now, where one character represents a certain point of view, the other character has the opposing point of view. And some of the tension and conflict in the story is the byplay between the two of them. And eventually, as a writer, maybe you wind up on one side or the other of that argument. But that's the whole point: is you want to have an argument to create conflict and tension. To me, as as a writer, uh, formal structure is
0: welcome. I know not everybody feels that way, but I sure do. Anything you write in science fiction has to have rules. And your story is in how you are fighting against those rules to come to your conclusion.
1: Well, yeah, in this case, you're fighting against the rules of physics, the laws of electricity, the vacuum of space. So that's what they're struggling against. There are human antagonists in in some of the stories, but really it's about man fighting the laws of nature and space and
0: overcoming them. And it is kind of interesting taking the office environment and putting it into space. That makes it very relatable, makes it an easier story to write. It's much more relatable, I think. That's a good way of writing a story. You take an ordinary, everyday conflict and you put it into the extreme circumstances of a science fiction story.
1: And I was just thinking, where else outside of some technical journal was George O. Smith going to write about all this technology that went into beams. Thank God for science fiction. It gave him an opportunity to write about all this stuff that was near and dear to him and do it in a fun way. Oh yeah. All right, well that's that's it for episode eight. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction.
0: I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits.
1: Two guys from Milwaukee.